Hallelujah. Uh, I can't think of anywhere I'd rather be this morning. And if you want to be somewhere else but right here, listening to Judy pound out amazing grace on an organ, you're nuts. And just go and go there. Because uh, I'm happy I'm here. And I'm happy you're here this morning. Um, I'm looking around this, this crowd. And uh, this is like a YMWB Hall of Fame. Uh, I'm seeing the Shays over here. Uh, I'm seeing John and Carolyn Miller. Uh, out here today is, a, is almost a literal pantheon of my heroes from college, Jim Spurrier and Faith and the, the Brodigams here, uh, famous in-laws of our pastor today. And uh, boy, it's great, great to welcome you here to the house of the Lord to celebrate with brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm sorry I'm in shorts, and I know some of you are really obsessed about that this morning, but there's a church picnic today, and I was told that this would be okay one day of the year. So John Louis, I'm sorry, but I will I will be back in in uh, three-piece suit next week. Would you please stand with me and join with me in the corporate call to worship? Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Please pray with me. Dear loving and compassionate Father, today I ask one simple thing. Let us not be guilty of the ultimate sin of ingratitude. To be here this morning, to be with people who care about us, to bask in your unconditional love. Where else in the cosmos can you find that this morning? And we thank you for that. And let us not be guilty of not thanking you and each other for that wonderful privilege to be here this morning. In your precious name, amen.
Once again, we welcome all of you, especially those from a younger class than mine, the class of 1971. Welcome those guests and other guests here today. Take a moment and greet one another in the Lord this morning. Before you speak. Your bulletin contains important items, but uh, just a few things to share with you. Pastor Wes and Cindy are away this week combining uh, an out-of-state wedding and a little bit of vacation time. And we welcome to the pulpit today Dr. Michael Jordan. He's the dean of the chapel at Houghton College. And we pray God's blessing on the ministry of the word a little later in the service. I guess the big announcement is that this next Sunday begins what we call here Summer Sabbath. We just have one worship service. You have to come early to find a seat. 10 o'clock next Sunday, 10 a.m., one worship service. Uh, Two other items to mention. Next Saturday, this isn't in your bulletin, at 1 p.m., there will be a service of internment for John and Muriel Babbitt. Now, these are people that were at Houghton Church when I was a little boy. Uh, Over at the Podunk Cemetery near Rushford, ask somebody or go to Google and you'll find where that is. There are a few of you who may be interested in that. One o'clock next Saturday. And finally, as some may already know, in God's providence, Crystal Blake, for whom we have prayed every Sunday for many years, went to be with the Lord this Friday here at Houghton. Thanks to those who helped minister to her immediate and extended family who were here for the week. Our children's library, the Szymanski, Bonnie Szymanski Library, especially was a blessing to the six or so children that were here during this week of vigil. There's been a wonderful testimony of God's amazing love and grace and witness for Christ in the midst of that family's suffering. So we keep their family now, who've moved on to Iowa, and the Czech Republic mission field group and team they were part of in our prayers these days.
Tim and Amanda, thank you so much for that offering of praise. I truly believe the Father is is blessed by that uh, beautiful song. Please join me in the Old Testament reading this morning, found in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. There's a passage entitled in the NIV, Judah Unfaithful. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord, the the sanctuary that the Lord loves, by marrying the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, Whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit, 
And do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. You have witnessed the Lord with your words. I'm sorry, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? This is the word of the Lord. Would you please stand with me and join in the doxology as the ushers come forward. Heavenly Father, this morning, let us be as generous with our possessions and our gifts as you have been with us. In your precious name, amen. You may be seated. I, too, just want to say thank you, Tim, for that song. 
For others who maybe don't know, we have a lot of great students at Houghton. He recently graduated and is going on to grad school, as many do. And uh, that song was so appropriate this week. The Lord has had his hand on us this week here at Houghton. So we come to the prayer of confession. This is a corporate prayer. We pray it together, followed by our pastoral prayer. And if you'd like to come, even now during the corporate prayer, if you're able and want to kneel at the altar here, you're welcome. I can't kneel myself, so I'll stay right where I am. But uh, let's join in the corporate prayer of confession in your bulletin. Together. Almighty God, you love us, but we have not loved you. We call, but we have not listened. We walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. We subtly condone evil, prejudice, warfare, and greed. God of grace, help us to admit to our sin, so that we may come to us first. We may repeat turn to you, and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who has promised that if we confess our sins, he will indeed forgive. Amen. We continue in prayer. O Lord, we do worship and praise you today for your mercies and blessings of this last week. Thank you for sustaining each of us with your grace. And we give thanks for this time of worship and the word. Continue to bless us with your presence. We open our hearts to you with written and spoken requests, as well as inner inner desires of our hearts. We do pray for the Blake family, especially Matt and his three children in this time of loss. Continue to comfort others who grieve at this time. We think of the family nearby who lost a father, husband, in the accident near Letchworth in Nunday. Lord, be with all those who grieve. Sudden losses, grief that's lasted a long time. And we also pray for the sick and recovering amongst us. And thank you for your tender care for Paul Young, for Blanche Weaver, Luke Heisinger, Wade Marsh, Sheldon Emerson, Doug Bogdan, Barb Rangel, Bob Joubert, Laura Bucher, Warren Woolsey, Bill Getty, Phil Mucher, Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, Bev Rett, Michael Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklear, and others. In a way, it's a joy and a blessing to be part and parcel of your care for them through our prayers. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit of unity and guidance at the Wesleyan General Conference this last week in Buffalo. And so we pray that you would anoint our new leadership. Be with those dealing with crises in the Wesleyan Church and in many other ways, other people in Sri Lanka and the continuing water crisis in in Flint, Michigan. Thank you for so many responding. We thank you, Lord, for sustaining many who suffer persecution 
real people like the story we heard this last week, providing your strength and your deliverance in the midst of these hard times. And during this time of Ramadan, the second week, when millions and millions of people are looking to their religious faith and practices to find peace with God, we pray for those who minister among the Muslims. Continue to reveal yourself to these people in the many ways that you can. And we continue to pray for refugees and those who are ministering to them. Help us to be faithful as your bride, your body. Be with our neighboring churches also, including the Friendship United Methodist Church and Pastor Gleason. Help Christians everywhere to shine faithful and true to the Lordship of Christ in these days of social and political unrest in our nation and around the world. And now again, we invite you, Lord, to be very near as Jesus promised he would be. We bring all these requests and more in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
I have to ask a merciful Father that He would forgive us when others look at the way that we think about each other and treat each other in this family, that they would not see His love. Forgive us. If you join me this morning and stand for the reading of the gospel, I'm reading from Matthew 5, verses 17 through 26. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer And you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Following the scripture, children may be dismissed for Children's Church right now.
seated. just want to begin by thanking Pastor Wes and the pastoral staff for extending me the invitation to speak this week. Um, It's a great honor to be asked to do this. Um, It's a great honor to feel the support of my pastors uh, in general in life for my work at the college. I feel very well supported by my pastors here to do that, and I'm very honored for the chance to speak here this week. Uh, Further than that, I'm also deeply grateful to our church those of you who have heard me speak before, I, this, this church was a, a large part of our decision to move to Houghton, was the knowledge that we could uh, find a home here to raise our family and to be embraced. Uh, so we just have appreciated what this church has been for us in our first few years here in town. I want to talk this morning about violence. And not only physical violence, although there is Certainly plenty of physical violence in this world. I mean, if you don't have to look very long at the news. Uh, I didn't know this, but apparently there was a shooting last night in Orlando that claimed 20-some lives. Uh, we live in a violent world. Violence uh, in our suburbs, violence in the urban areas, violence perpetrated against the church, violence perpetrated in the name of God, violence done by husbands to wives, violent rhetoric in presidential campaigns, and in everyday speech. We live in a world of violence. And for a long time, I've thought about how anger is at the root of violence. When I was a college student, I would have told you that I don't think anger is right or wrong. But anger is kind of neutral, I would have said in those days, that you can be angry about good things. To be, there are things that make God angry, and as long as you're angry about those things, then you're okay to be angry. Uh, But you can also feel anger at the wrong things, I would have said. Now, I said that even though the Bible clearly tells us, actually we read some from Colossians 3 this morning, just before that in this passage, that says, rid yourselves of anger. (laughs) Uh, And of course, there's very clear evidence in what Jesus has said, even in the text this morning, that anger is at the root of violence. Our tendency to be angry with each other is not just a morally neutral sort of thing. So now I think that anger is more of a concern than I would have thought before. But I also uh, have a sense that there's even more going on than just anger. That Jesus says anger is at the root of violence, but there's also a tendency to say to your brother, raka, this term of derision, contempt. The tendency to say to our brothers and sisters, you fool. I want to talk about what I understand as another root of violence this morning, and that is contempt. Anger is not the only root of violence, but we can say violence has two roots, anger and contempt. And contempt, I think, is the more bitter root of violence. Contempt is one of the words that we recognize. I'm sure you know the word contempt. You've heard it used before many times. Uh, My father uh, was actually in the early service this morning. They're up visiting this weekend. My mom and dad are here for the 45th... um, I keep saying 45th anniversary. It's the 45th reunion. And uh, so my dad was here. He just retired from, uh, I think, 26 or 27 years serving as a municipal judge. 
And so we always enjoyed, as we were kids, this will tell you about how I grew up, uh, we always enjoyed him telling stories about his day in court and the kinds of colorful characters that would come through a New Jersey courtroom. And one of the things he talked about sometimes was having to hold people in contempt. I had to hold so-and-so in contempt. A person is held in contempt of court when they disregard the court's authority. Maybe the judge tells them to do something and they won't do it. Uh, Maybe they show disrespect for the courtroom in that they sit on the witness stand and put their feet up or something. Or maybe they would use foul language. Or maybe my dad, as the judge, would say simply, you have to do this. You have to show up at this date and this time and they would be late. Lateness is cause for being held in contempt. If you disobey the rules of the court, if you act like the court is somehow beneath you, then you can be held in contempt. Your actions, that is, will be understood as being in contempt of the court itself. If you act like you don't recognize who you're dealing with in a court, you're held in contempt. So this is a court, not this, of course, this is a church, but my dad is saying this is a court. It has the power to liberate you. It has the power to send you to jail. And if you act like you don't understand that, and instead act like you're out at a bar with your friends, your actions will show that you have contempt for this court. If you act like somehow the court is there to be a backdrop for your show, you show that you have contempt for the court and the court will hold you in a contempt. You're a player in the court's show. You're a character in the court's business, not the other way around. The court is not a character in your life. Contempt between people is something like this as well. We have contempt for others when we act like we don't know who we're dealing with. We have contempt for people when we don't seem to realize that whenever we talk to a person, any person, no matter what, we are talking to someone who is created in the image of God. And we are talking to someone in whose life God is working right now. Consider this, when we tell our stories, when you give your testimony as a Christian, many times what we do is we talk about the time in our lives before we knew Jesus, and we say, even then, God was working, right? Even then, God was doing something to draw me to himself. Even then, God was doing something. God was at work. God, God was arranging something so I would hear the gospel in this way, or God was putting people in my life so I could hear the word in this way at this time. God's at work. But somehow we very easily miss that even people who are enemies, people who are on the wrong side of the culture wars from us, God is working in their lives right now, doing the same thing. God is showing them grace. How then could we think it is appropriate to show them contempt? To not realize who we're dealing with. To not realize that we're dealing with a precious object of God's grace. Even our enemies are created in the image of God, and and we have contempt for them when we act like they are just players in our show. Whether they're our friends or our enemies, there's more going on in other people's lives than just the inconvenience or the joy that they cause us. And we show contempt for others when we boil it down to the impact that they're having on us right now. Now, it's very, it's very natural, I think, at this point in the sermon for you to say, ah, that's not something that I do. I don't do that. I, I don't treat other people like they're players in my show. 
right? You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't look at someone and say, the only value you have here is that you kind of are a bit character in in the story that is my life. We'd never say that to each other. But I want you to consider that I think it's woven more deeply into our lives than we'd like to admit. That there's contempt is woven into the nature of things more than we really want to let on. The other day I was talking with a friend of mine, J.L. Miller. Some of you know him, his wife Heidi, and he uh, do junior church down with our church at the 820 service. And we were talking about decisions about schooling for our children. So we've chosen to send our kids to public school. At least for right now, they are homeschooling their children. And... As you know, that debate about what you should do with your children, should they go to public school, should they go to Christian school, should they go be homeschooled, those are decisions that are very difficult to make, lots of pros and cons on both sides of that, and they're decisions that parents get very defensive about, right? If you told me, you're doing the wrong thing sending your kid to public school, I'd say, well, let's have a talk, you know, because I disagree, I think we're doing the right thing, and we, we'd sort of talk that out. We, we get very defensive about the decisions that we make. And part of what we do when we get defensive like that is we end up taking people who have made the other decision and sort of stereotyping them to make it more convenient for us. So we say, those of us who have chosen public school say, you know, typical homeschooler, right? And you know what I mean when I say that, right? Because that's how public schoolers will talk to each other. People who have chosen public school say, we don't want our, we don't want, because you know what happens when kids do homeschool. And of course, my friend JL says that this happens on the other side of the thing too, that, that those who choose homeschool say, what are you doing sending your kid to this state school where they're going to slurp down the state agenda for their lives? Why are you treating school like babysitting? You should be a real parent and get involved in your kid's education. When we do this, now I, of course, have better reasons for sending my kids to public school than that. Does that make sense? I don't recognize that in my story. I don't recognize his, his rationalization in what he says about public school. I don't recognize that as my reasons for sending my kid to public school. This is what we do sometimes when we feel insecure about the decisions that we've made. We take the reasons that other people make other decisions and say, you know what, they're really dumb. They're really stupid for making that decision. The only reason they could arrive at that conclusion is that they're dumb. We do this so that we feel better about the decisions that we have made. Hear me clearly. This is contempt. Right? Not just saying to another person out loud, you're a bit player in my show. But taking a story or taking another person who's very complicated, who God is doing amazing things with in very complicated ways and saying, I think I understand it. It's simple. They're dumb. I'll put them out of my life. I remember this very clearly when I was a pastor, when I was in seminary. We were trained, especially in clergy self-care, the needs to have, the need to have boundaries as a pastor. To not simply let congregations into your life completely, but that you need to have days off, you need to take vacation. And of course, that's a good thing. Like, I don't want us to be bothering Wes and Cindy with trivial stuff on their vacation this week, and we should give them days off and all of that. But when I was learning that stuff, People painted a pretty bleak picture of congregational life. They basically said to me, your congregation is looking for ways to take advantage of you. Don't let them do it. They will call you at all hours. Don't answer the phone, right? They will bother you on your day off. Say politely, I don't have time right now. 
They meant well. They said build your boundaries. But what it ended up doing was painting a picture of congregations as either cruel or clueless people who were trying always to take advantage of me. And it was two or three years into my pastorate before I realized I was always playing defense against these people. I was always trying to keep them out of my life. I was always trying to protect myself from these people that they told me were trying to take advantage of me. And I realized that I was being contemptuous. I was presuming the worst in them to feel better about the decisions that I had made, the very virtuous decision to become a pastor. So contempt is a defense mechanism. It's something that we do when we're feeling afraid or insecure. We hold other people down in order to sort of build ourselves up. Jesus makes very clear the link between contempt and violence. He said, you've heard it said it's do not murder, but I tell you it's anger, but not just anger. It's saying to your brother, raka, this derision, this term of derision. It's calling your brother a fool. That's at the root of violence. And sometimes we act like it's okay to feel whatever we're feeling as long as we don't lash out in anger, as long as we don't call people names to their faces. But contempt is at the heart of these feelings. Contempt is at the heart of anger, and anger and contempt are at the heart of violence. Contempt is at the root of all of this. Contempt is what makes violence possible. Because contempt makes it seem normal and justifiable to look at a person created in the image of God and see only a fool. Contempt makes it seem that others are not worthy of our time and attention, but only worthy of insults. Contempt makes it seem that beautiful, bright beings are fools. Contempt makes us say to another person, you have nothing to teach me. You have nothing to give to me. You are dead to me. And Jesus says (laughs) the difference between killing someone and saying you are dead to me is only semantics. Now, here is the awful reality for us as Christians especially. If we're not careful, our Christianity can make us more contemptuous rather than less contemptuous. When you have a gift to offer at the altar, when you have a religious duty to perform, It can always seem like the religious duty is more important than the people who are around you at that given moment. When you have a gift to offer at the altar, you can become so impressed with the magnitude and the shininess of your gift that you forget all about that brother or sister that you have a broken relationship with. When you have a gift to offer at the altar, you can get so caught up in that ecstatic feeling of connection with God that you can begin to think of others as only obstacles to that connection with God instead of the precious people that they are. Let me just cut to the heart of the matter. If we don't root out contempt, we will never be the Christians God made us to be. No matter what we believe about God, no matter how exacting and precise our theology, no matter if you personally are a wonderful apologist, a brilliant theologian, no matter if you are a marvelous baker, no matter if you are a hardworking trustee, no matter if we do not root out contempt, we will not be the Christians God made us to be. Because we live in, remember, a violent world. We live in a violent world where people turn on the TV and they see wars and they see murders and death. But even deeper than that, we live in a violent world because we live in a contemptuous world where people can turn on the TV and not just see death, but see people humiliated 
because they have the wrong body type or the wrong beliefs. We live in a a contemptuous world where athletes are the subject of scorn because they drop a ball, where people are humiliated because they like the wrong music. We live in a contemptuous world that humiliates the old simply for being old and failing to understand youth culture. Deeper than this, we live in an advertising culture, frankly, that tells you you're an idiot half the time if you prefer Coke to Pepsi, and the other half of the time you're an idiot if you prefer Pepsi to Coke. Do you see the whole murderous thing runs on rivalry? The whole murderous thing runs on niche marketing. The whole murderous thing runs on contempt. And the world is desperately looking for people who don't live that way. Who realize that freedom in Christ means they don't have to live that way. The world is looking for people who have discovered some other fuel for living than the toxic fuel of contempt. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. All of it waits for you and I to be what we were made to be. Instead of just playing along in a toxic, broken system. And make no mistake, we do play along. (laughs) We play along every time we have the chance to repair a relationship and instead choose to just subsist on stereotypes. We, We play along every time we refuse to listen to those with whom we disagree. We play along every time we confront angrily instead of gently. And we play along every time we don't confront because we're just sure they're not going to listen to us anyway and it's not going to do any good. We play along with the system every time someone confronts us. And we react in anger and defensiveness instead of an optimism that we still have something to learn. Every time we value ideas over people, every time our anger at one another outweighs our affinity for each other, every time we let a relationship wither and die because it's just not worth our time, every time we categorize people as too liberal for us or too conservative for us or too old for us and too young for us, every time we do that, we play along with a system that runs on contempt. And just like the psalmist would say, this world has had its fill of contempt. And it doesn't need any more contempt from us. No matter how we Christianize our contempt by saying we're doing it out of love, the world doesn't need it. The world needs, the world needs people who see each other and who see the world just like Jesus saw people and saw the world as precious beings created in the image of God. And so always, always, always worth your best. That person sitting next to you right now, whether you know them or not, they deserve your best. That person deserves your attention when they speak because God might have a word for you through them. That person, if they're going astray, they deserve your best, fairest, most loving, gentle, honest confrontation. They don't need you to shy away from confrontation. They don't need you to be angry because they don't need contempt. But they need to see Jesus in you. They need you to see them like Jesus did, with with eyes that see to the bottom of their circumstances. With a heart that yearns for reconciliation and, and believes the best in each other, even when it's difficult. Jesus did this, you know. He saw right through people to what they really were. He looked at a crooked tax collector and said, you're a philanthropist. He looked at a woman living in sin, an unmarried woman who had had five husbands and was living in sin. The same Jesus who is the God who said, I hate divorce, looked at this woman and said, you're an evangelist. Jesus hangs on a cross, looks at a criminal next to him and says, you're my roommate. 
We need to confront each other, yes, but we need to confront each other with that spirit where we see each other as we really are, bright, beautiful, eternal beings, instead of through the lens of insecurity that so often drives us to angry confrontation or passive-aggressive failure to confront. We need to call out the good in each other to say when we see each other, when we really see and have seen Christ in each other, to thank God for them and to thank them for what they've done. And you know what? I've said about this person sitting next to you in the sanctuary, but it's also true of the person who's sitting across the sanctuary or up in the balcony that you don't know. We all need it. (laughs) We all need that encouragement, that confrontation, that attention, that love. Because that person that you've never met, whoever they are, they also live in a world dripping with contempt. And they need you as their brother or their sister to remind them of who they really are. If I could have just one bunny trail real quick, and I promise it'll be quick. Should I promise? I don't know. Preachers shouldn't promise that. But anyway, I think that's part of why the family is in so much crisis in our culture. Because often the way we romanticize the family is we say, the family, my family, my home, that's the one place that we're free of contempt. The world around us is contemptuous, but when I go home and I'm with my family, that's a safe place for me. Now, of course, families should be free of contempt, right? But I feel like that's asking a lot of any family to do perfectly. Have you ever met a family that had no contempt? Please introduce them to me, right? Because I have something to learn from them. Because I find myself all the time acting out of contempt. Not hatefulness, hear me, but like I look at my kids and I say, why can't you just act like grown-ups? They're kids. Of course they're not going to act like grown-ups. But in that moment, I'm just so frustrated and I don't need for them to be kids, but I need for them to be grown up in order to sort of get through my day. Does that make sense? Sometimes even husbands and wives reflect contempt for each other. But that's, that's part of the mythology that's built up around marriage and the family in our culture. Your spouse is this one person who never does it wrong, who really understands you, who never shows contempt. Your spouse is the shelter in the storm, the one person who likes you for you in a culture that just doesn't get you. And that's fine and good, except for a few things. I mean, what, what happens... Sorry, my in-laws are here. What happens when you don't like your spouse just at that moment? (laughs) You know? Like, that's what happens. Two people who live together don't like each other every second of their life together. No two people can like each other all the time. That's just normal. I mean, to be frustrated with each other, to not know how to deal with each other sometimes. So so let's keep it real about marriage. If marriage is about liking each other all the time, if family is about liking each other all the time, we're all failing. And if you and your spouse are the only things going, the only shelter from the tempest of contempt going on all around you, it's no wonder people get divorced. I mean, if that's what you're promised that marriage is, you're going to be disappointed. And it's no wonder that people without a faith leave their marriages. But but the need that we have for security and intimacy and meaning and purpose, that's a real need. But we can't layer that all on our spouse and our children. Because the answer for our need is secure, for security and love is not the family, it's the church. Jill is not my only shelter from the storm of contempt. And I'm not her only shelter, but we both have shelter here because we know you. 
And in you, we are reminded of who we are even when we fail as spouses. Now, it's a problem because marriages are like that, but it's also a real problem, frankly, because not everyone gets married, right? If marriage and family are your only shelter in the storm, what about the people who never get married? And what about the people who have been married, but their spouses have died? Are they somehow now just magically cured of their need for significance? Life has a way of twisting and turning sometimes, and and marriage is really impossible for some people. There are all kinds of people, for lots of reasons, who are not married in our church. Many of you that I'm talking to, hear me carefully. The fact that they are not married, the fact that you're not married, does not make you half Christian, does not make you less important, and it doesn't mean the needs that you have for significance and security, the need that you have for a shelter from the storm of contempt is real. And it won't be solved by finding a spouse. (laughs) But this mythology has grown up in our culture is that that's the way to find it. Marriage is the way to find yourself through a hostile culture. Consult a Disney movie on this topic. And as Christians, we have to say, no, that's a lie. That's wrong. The way to find happiness is not to find one other person who uniquely likes you and will never, ever, ever drop the ball for you. No, the way to find happiness and meaning and security is in the presence of God and in the presence of his people who minister that presence to you by reminding you of who you really are. I'm not happy when, I'm the only per- when Jill is the only person in the world who's not contemptuous of me. Does that make sense? If I looked at you all and said, you all have got it in for me, but at least I can go home where I'm safe. That's not a happy life. Jill's a really good wife. She's an amazing spouse, but she can't do that. <laughs> She's better than me at being a spouse, but that's besides the point, you know. But when trying to find perfect love, Jesus didn't say, find one other person who can perfectly love you and then react angrily when they fail. No, he said, I'm giving you a church. I am giving you tens and hundreds and thousands of mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and friends. And all are welcome in this body. And any person in the world, regardless of whether or not they have a traditional family or not, should be able to come into this family and find a place free from contempt. A shelter from the storm of contempt are not just our homes. It's right here and right now in our midst. And we can do this only when we know that God loves us. Only when we know so deeply that God loves us and that we love each other that we realize we don't have to play the world's games of contempt anymore. We have friends who are our new family. (laughs) And the way to get there, and with this I'll take my seat, but I was moved, Jamie, by what you said about gratitude this morning. Because I think the way to get to a place where we realize contempt is a losing game, where we stop playing by those rules, is through gratitude. Gratitude to me is this amazing tool that God can use to change our hearts. Because so often in a contemptuous world, what we feel like is I'm surrounded by enemies and idiots. I'm surrounded by people who wish me harm. But good thing I got you, God. And together, you and I will get through these idiots and enemies. (laughs) But gratitude says, no, that's not real. That God's love is more than just this connection that he and I have in a hostile world. God's love is a current carrying this whole thing along. A current from which I can't escape. A current of which you are a part. And so that I don't have to look out at you and think, they've got it in for me. No, I can say, look at my brothers and sisters, (laughs) some of whom I know and some of whom I don't, all of whom are ready to speak God's love into my life if I will but have ears to hear. In times like ours, every church says, 
we want to speak the truth in love. We want to bring a distinctly Christian message to a non-Christian, to a post-Christian culture. It's a really hard thing to do. It's really, really hard. Because the gospel has sharp corners, doesn't it? You take the gospel to a world like that. How do we say some things that the world is going to find unpopular? And often we think about this in terms of bravery. I need to state my convictions. I need to be strong. I need to not be afraid. I need to be a prophet. I need to be God's person going into Nineveh and saying what's on my mind and not being afraid. And that's honorable. But it's not enough. <laughs> I think gratitude has to be part of it. We, we Christians have to be deeply convinced, deeply convinced in our heart of hearts that God has not abandoned us. God has not just sent us into Nineveh by ourselves. God has not left us alone in a contemptuous world. God, gratitude reminds us that God has always given us enough. God has richly provided for us. We really are, in the end, <laughs> children of privilege. You know, those kids... In college, who seem to have everything and drive the fanciest cars and have the rich parents. That's us, not someone else. (laughs) Children of privilege who have no need to wonder if daddy loves us because he keeps giving us stuff and showing us and showing us and showing us. Creation waits with eager longing for us to know how much we're loved and to share that love with others. Will you pray with me? God, with the psalmist, we say we have had our fill of contempt. And we rejoice, though, God, that the answer to this is not simply found in some ethereal connection with you in the middle of a hostile world, but that in each other, in our life together, in the way that we live, in the way that we speak, we can be harbingers of an eternal life. We can begin to see your eternal way of living enacted now so that we can live freely and in love with each other and with the world you've given us. Help us to reflect that love to all the people with whom we come into contact. Whether they speak your name or know your name or whether they're our enemies, help us to always be free of contempt in the way that we speak with them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I always feel like a good sermon asks people to do the impossible. And so I feel like I put an impossible vision out for you. To be a, a church free of contempt. That's something we will only see in glory. But I pray that this week and in the coming weeks that you see little pinpricks of light shining through the darkness. That you see the body of Christ being what we were made to be. And may you seize on that light. Give thanks to God and each other for it. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.